service. If you could find a seat, we'll get started. So I want to start the service by um, having you open the door. Mike was turned off. It's not the sound guy's fault. <laughs> well, it is his fault. He changed the battery and then it didn't get turned back on. Anyway, let me do it again so you folks at home can see. I want to welcome you here. Glad to have you here. And uh, I'd like to start by just uh, noticing that there's a platform up here of people. You probably don't know all of them. My name is Eric. This is Jess and Doug. You maybe know those. But over there is Peter Blaylock. And... Um, I want, that is Peter, be like Peter. Peter saw that we needed people up here and he volunteered. He's from Montana and he won't be here much longer, but Peter, welcome. <laughs> Glad you could be with us. And yeah, if anybody else has talent out there, let us know. We'd love to have you join us. So Pastor Tim is preaching this morning on the uh, passage in Luke where Jesus calmed the storm and he... Uh, took care of that, and he challenged his disciples because of their lack of faith. I don't know if you ever have times when you feel like you are in a storm of some kind, something that has come up, or you have fears or anxieties, or something that's just weighing on you, and you would love to have Jesus come and calm your storm. So we're going to start our service with some songs that remind us of Jesus' power and his care for us and the fact that he does love us. Let me start the service by reading for you a passage of Scripture, and then we'll sing. If you would stand, if you're able to, and we will hear the word of the Lord. This is a passage from Psalm 86. Bend down, O Lord, and hear my prayer. Answer me, for I need your help. Protect me, for I am devoted to you. Save me, for I serve you and trust you. You are my God. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am calling on you constantly. Does that sound at all familiar? Give me happiness, O Lord, for I give myself to you. O Lord, you are so good, so ready to forgive, so full of unfailing love for all who ask for your help. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may live according to your truth, and grant me purity of heart that I may honor you. With all my heart, I will praise you, O Lord, my God. I will give glory to your name this morning and forever, for your love for me is very great. What a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arm. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arm. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all. Walk in this pilgrim way, leaning 
seated. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. For those of you who are new or visiting or don't know who I am, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to gather with you this morning as we worship together. Not just as we sing that last song, so I have three young daughters, and so I sing that song like 42 times a day. <laughs> and, like, and like, part of the problem with that is that like, you sing it so often, right, the words are kind of wash in and wash out. You don't actually think while you're singing. Right? And, but like, there's great truth in that song, right, that Jesus loves us. And so I just want to celebrate that this morning. I'm going to invite Glenn and Josh to come up and join me on stage here. For a couple of announcements, but while they come, let me just draw a couple of things, your attention to a couple of things. One, it is, we're gonna, at the end of our service today, we're going to celebrate communion. And so, if I'm on your way in, you didn't grab the kind of individually wrapped communion elements, you can sneak out in the back. There's a bunch of baskets with these elements in it, and you can grab those um, while I'm praying or during the sermon or sometime that's convenient. Um, so then, along with that, we'll also take a a benevolent offering, a part of our Communion Sunday, where it's a dedicated offering that we collect to give to the needs of just our community. And so your regular tithes and offering can go in the, the box that's on the back wall, but there'll be someone holding a tray that'll be for a dedicated benevolence offering for meeting um, community needs. Another couple other things. So after the service today and next week, there'll be meetings for VBS helpers. And so if you're helping, serving in VBS, you can need to attend one of those two meetings, either after the service today or next week to kind of learn a little bit more about what's going on there. Right. And then tonight at, at 7 o'clock, Eric will lead us in a hymn sing here at church. So we invite you to join us as we sing some of the great hymns of our, of our faith. And so with that, I'm going to invite like, Glenn up. He's going to talk a little bit about church membership. Good morning. Is this on? There we go. Um, since we've been married, Julie and I have moved around quite a lot, and we've ended up attending five different churches in three different denominations over those years. One thing we haven't done is to become members at all of those churches. Why should we? We were transients, and besides, we plugged in all the same. But it's not quite the same. Uh, an immigrant does not have quite the same connection to the country as does a naturalized citizen. Two people who regard a marriage certificate as a mere piece of paper don't have the same commitment as two people who say, till death do us part. And perhaps um, a regular church attendee can't contribute to the church life and governance in quite the same way that a church member can. We came to Wisconsin supposing that we might be transients here as well, and perhaps we are. But we've also been here four years now calling this our home church. So we've decided we're going to make the move from regular attendee to church member. What does that mean practically? First, I think it means that we can participate more fully in the local body of Christ through decision-making and governance. We're acknowledging that we have a responsibility to this body. Second, I think membership results in more accountability because we're placing ourselves under the authority of the church. And I think this is biblical. If you've been a regular attendee here for more than a year or so, you too should seriously consider becoming a member. You might object 
asking, what do I really gain from church membership other than the privilege of voting? Or you might fear, if I become a member, I'm going to have a target on my back and I'm immediately going to ask, become asked to be a deacon or a deaconess. Maybe you will get asked to serve. I hope you do. You should serve somewhere. But I suggest a different attitude. Um, to paraphrase JFK, don't ask, what do I get out of this? But ask, what gifts has God given me and how can I best use those gifts to build up the church? If the answer to that involves membership in this local body of this church, then I invite you to join us for the membership class here on August 14th. Thank you. And I'll invite Josh up as well. Josh is our chair of our mission committee. He's going to share a little bit about mission. Thanks, Tim. Um, <clears throat> just want to give a brief update uh, on our missionaries. Um, we have a few that we support. Um, one of the goals of the missions committee this year is to bring awareness to the congregation on what's actually happening with our missions, um, who they are, how they're doing, and how we can pray for them. Um, so first one, we have the Ellenwood family over in the Czech Republic. Um, I, I think the overall theme with everybody this year has been COVID really changed how their missions looked and worked. Uh, financially, there were strains. Um, you know, the Ellenwoods general, in general say things are great. God has really provided a lot, of, uh, a, a lot in this time of need. They have had some dip in their... Um, in their giving, they had a church that had to pull out from supporting them. Um, we are still fully supporting them the way that we have previously. Um, nothing has changed with that. We're really happy that we were able to do that. Um, but if you could pray for them, um, you know, this coming year that that God would just continue to provide. And um, we're hoping to see them at some point, um, perhaps maybe in the next several months, but we don't know. Um, we have the Long family, Trevor, Cassie, Jade and Josie, Maya and Toby. Uh, they're over in Minneapolis uh, working for the Navigators. And obviously this year really was different for them considering they're on college campus. Um, so it was, it, was, it was a very tough year for the Longs. Um, honestly, uh, they feel pretty depleted right now. They've been pouring um, out uh, into others for the last few years. And actually, they have the um, opportunity to take a sabbatical right now, which is something that Navigators encourages all of their um, staff to take about every seven to ten years. So they are just now entering that rest phase. Um, it'll be about a three to six month sabbatical. Um, specifically, they'd like us to pray um, for the Lord to refresh them during this time, uh, strengthen them. And just kind of figure out, uh, you know, how he can lead them to make decisions, um, you know, in the future when they when they return from that sabbatical. Um, we also have the Vanderplugs, um, which work with the Jesus Films Ministry out of Crew. Um, their year essentially didn't happen uh, for the last year. No overseas missions. Everything was done here at home. Uh, whether you know virtually or just training wise um, the big news obviously was a baby in the last uh, month um, so his name is Silas baby Silas is doing well um, other news they just moved so 
the address that was posted last week is actually already out of date. Um, <laughs> so we won't be posting that publicly, but if you, if you do want to get that information to reach out to them, you can contact me. Um, if you want to, you know, add an additional gift, we can get you their, um, their crew identification number. Um, and then also, Nolan just started uh, school um, on July 7th. So um, for those of you that were in the know on that, he is working on a, uh, a counseling program kind of simultaneously while working with crew. So that's a very exciting and probably a very uh, trying period of time for them. Um, and then lastly, Haiti. So we support uh, Vision of Hope Ministries. And um, I don't want to steal uh, the thunder from Greg on this, but I, I wanted to give an update. Many of you may have heard that uh, the president of Haiti was assassinated this week. Um, so currently this is, I did not know this, but the country is now under martial law for 15 days. And um, businesses are closed. Things are actually relatively calm, they say, but the border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic is closed as well. Um, Cap Haitian, which is where like the main churches that we support um, are where Vision of Hope Ministries is located, um, they're safe right now, as of this writing, which was just a couple of days ago. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's kind of a perpetual state of chaos in Haiti, in a way. Um, so right now, things are a little bit more on edge. Um, but uh, we really need to remember Haiti in our prayers uh, for God's provision during this crisis. Um, fortunately, Vision of Hope Ministries is still fully operational. Um, the school is partially open, but, um, but Haiti still needs uh, continual prayer um, to get them through this. So um, that, is, uh, that is all I have for today. Um, like I said, if, if anybody has questions or wants to um, you know, further reach out to any of our uh, missionaries, just uh, contact me. Thanks. Will you pray with me for our missionaries? Father, we praise you for the work you have done in the lives of these people we just heard about who have given up many comforts and just ease of life things to go serve you, whether it's on college campuses, whether it's overseas. We thank you for the work that you're doing to bring the gospel to all peoples and all nations, both in, through our missionaries here at our church and through missionaries throughout the world. As different missionaries, especially in the past year, have gone through trying times, we pray that you would give encouragement and refreshment and a renewed sense of your grace and presence to them, that it would fuel them to do the work you have called them to do. Um, and we just pray that you, you will continue to do your work to advance your kingdom throughout the world through the, through the work of these missionaries. As we prepare now to worship you in song, that you would still our hearts so we could hear these words and we'd sing them from our hearts to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So at this time, I'm going to sing a song of special music. We don't uh, do special music much anymore. But it's a song that I don't think many of you know, and I'm not sure if it's one that we will add to our repertoire, although if you en end up with an opinion on that, you can let me know. 
Um, so my dad, who was a pastor and a professor of philosophy for his career, um, he once said, uh, and I can't remember the setting, but I've never forgotten, and he says, you know, our spiritual vigor and, and vitality is like the tides. It ebbs and it flows. And I'm sure that many of you have felt that um, in your own lives. And, um, I, and he also said, but Jesus at one time, when there was a bit of trial, uh, a trial in his ministry and people were falling, you know, leaving, the, leaving him and not following him anymore, he turned to his disciples and he asked them, and what about you? Are you going to leave also? And Peter said in his way, he said, Lord, who else would we turn to? You alone have the words of life. And so that's something that I have just, that has just stuck with me as these tides of, of spiritual closeness have ebbed and flowed. And this is a song that's a prayer. And I think that you'll find at least something in it that resonates with you. So pray along with me as I sing. Come as a wisdom to children. Come as new sight to the blind. Come, Lord, as strength to my weakness. Take me soul, body, and mind. Come as a rest to the weary. As a palm for the sore, come as a dew to my dryness, fill me with joy evermore. Come, Holy Spirit, I need you now. Come, sweet Spirit, I pray.
dismiss and stand and sing on this next song. that be true of us as we walk through storms? Would we be able to be still and trust and know that you are a God who cares for us and who loves us even in the storm? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we just sang about the storm. We're going to be in Luke chapter 8 this morning. We're going to be in 22 through 25, which is about Jesus calming a storm. 
while you turn there, let me tell you a little bit about old German philosophers. The 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche once famously said, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. And like in the hundred plus years since he said that, it's become almost cliche. Right? Like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Like, it's probably a line you've heard, maybe even a line you've said. Like, like Kelly Clarkson even turned that line into a like, number one hit song and it won all kinds of awards. Like, I'm not going to sing that for you, but like, <laughs> you probably heard it, right? And so, like, the, the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, has become widely used. There's just like one little problem, that it's like not always true. Right? Like there are plenty of things that don't kill you, but that also don't make you stronger. And if you want evidence for that, you have to look no further than to the man who said those words. Like Frederick Nietzsche had this like prodigious early career, right? so much so that at the age of 24, he became the youngest ever chair of classical philology at the University of Basel. Like, 24. Like, that's 10 years younger than me. Like, like, I know some of you think I'm young, right? but like, I look at that and I'm like, 24, like, I've done nothing with my life. I'm like, he's 24 and he's the chair of a department of university. And so like, he got off to a huge, great start. Right? But then he started to suffer health problems. And those problems got so bad that at the age of 34, only 10 years later, after becoming chair, he, he was forced to resign from the university. And then at the age of 44, he, he suffered a mental breakdown that like, forced him to live the rest of his life in the care of his mother and sister. He would never publish any major works again. He would never contribute to a professional field again. Like his, his breakdown kind of made him incapable of having meaningful relationships and like, so, like, surely you'd be hard-pressed to make a compelling case that all those physical problems and relational problems and mental troubles, like, made Nietzsche stronger. Like, they didn't kill him, but they didn't seem to make him stronger. And there are, there are many situations in life like that, right? where they don't kill it, but they also don't make us stronger. But one place where Nietzsche's words do hold up surprisingly well is in is in the life of faith, which is ironic, right? Because Nietzsche is the man who once famously declared, God is dead. Yet, like, he spoke better than he knew about what Christian faith formation looks like. That which does not kill us makes us stronger. The trials and sufferings of life that, that don't kill our faith often serve to make our faith stronger. To live as a Christian is to live a life that will inevitably be marked by trials and tribulations and persecution. Like Jesus promised it. He said, in this world you will have trouble. We will all go through periods of physical and emotional and spiritual hardship. And it would be easy to think, right, those trials, those tribulations, would be the things that threaten to kill our faith. That they could be the source of making us lose our faith in Jesus. But actually, like, for those who are closely following Jesus, right, those trials, instead of killing our faith, actually make our faith stronger. And so, like, what I want us to see this morning in our time together is this. Like, while following Jesus will lead to trials, Jesus' faithfulness to us through those trials 
will lead us to even greater faith. In fact, I kind of give it as something like a, a cycle. Right? And so you can see this cycle in your bulletin or on the slide here. Right? So it's this idea, like, we follow Jesus. Right? And as we follow Jesus, we will face trials. Right? Sometimes it'll be Jesus himself who leads us into those trials. And those trials, right, they can lead to seasons of doubt and questioning and wondering what's going on. But even as we have those doubts, Jesus is still faithful. Jesus remains faithful to us. And as he remains faithful, we get to know him more deeply, and that leads us to even greater faith, which leads us to following Jesus even more closely. So that's, the, that's the cycle we're going to kind of walk through this morning. And what I want to do this morning is we is look at one passage in the Bible to see how all the disciples walk through this cycle step by step in this one particular event. So we're going to read the whole passage first, and then we'll look at each step in the process. So we're in Luke chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped. And they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we, we are going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all, the, and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? Who commands even the wind and the water, and they obey him? And so, the first thing we see in the passage, then, right, is that, and it's something that maybe seems like super obvious, and so so obvious that we could miss it. Right? But the first thing we see is that, like the disciples were being obedient to Jesus. Right? They were they were following him. Look again at verse at verse twenty-two. One day Jesus said to the disciples. Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. It was Jesus' command to get in the boat and go over to the other side. And the disciples, they obeyed. No questions asked. Like they didn't say, like, are you sure, Jesus? Like, the weather doesn't look great. They didn't say, like, can we go later? Like, I'm kind of tired. And like, Based on how easily Jesus fell asleep, they probably all were very tired at that point. But Jesus commanded them, and they obeyed. No questions, no delays, no excuses. And it seemed pretty straightforward. Like If Jesus gives a direct command, people who call themselves followers of Jesus should obey without excuse. And it should be easy. But then I like think about all the straightforward commands that Jesus gives in the Bible. And I think about like how I'm doing and obeying some of those. And like it's a little convicting, right? I'm not always great at obeying the simple, straightforward, obvious commands of Jesus. Right? I, I make excuses for not obeying. Like I look for, for exceptions to the rules so I can weasel my way out of obeying. Right? Like I, I'm slow to obey, I delay my obedience. Like maybe it's just me, right? but like just to help you check whether that may apply to you, let me just give you a short list of some of the straightforward, simple commands that Jesus gives in the Bible, and just invite you to ask yourself, like, how am I doing at obeying this? Right? Here's the first one. 
Go and be reconciled with a brother or sister who has something against you. And so like, if you have a problem with a brother or sister, like, go figure it out. Go be reconciled. Don't let that fester. And so do you obey that right away? Or do you think things like, well, they started it. Or like, it's, it's hopeless. There's no point in even trying because they're not going to meet me halfway, so it's not even worth trying. Or do you think like, well, I could do that, but it'd be super awkward. I'd rather just kind of put on a happy face and pretend everything's good. Right? And like, that's what I'm inclined to do. Like, I don't, want, I don't like confrontation, so I'm just like, well, just pretend. Right? We'll put on a happy face. Right? But that's the command of Jesus. Go and be reconciled. Or how about this command from Jesus? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right? How are you doing at that? Or another one. Right? Do not worry. That verbatim, like out of Jesus' mouth, right? Like, how are you doing? Like, do you worry? Because Jesus says, don't worry. Right? He says, do not lust. And in fact, like, be willing to take extreme measures to guard against lust. Right? Or he says, do to others what you would have them do to you. Right? Are you always quick to obey that one? Right? He says, be on guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Do you ever feel that inclination toward greed and materialism? Right? Or do you quick to obey the simple command? Right? And so even like these simple direct commands from Jesus can be hard to obey. Right? So the disciples deserve credit for obeying quickly in this situation. Right? But here's the thing about Jesus' commands. It can be really easy can it, to have a belief system that says, well, if I obey God, right, if I stay in the center of his will, whatever that means, right, then life will be easy and good things will just happen to me. Right? Like, as long as I don't sin and I don't fall short, then, like, God's gonna, then God won't allow me to experience trial. Like, if I'm obeying God, things will be good. Right? We can act as if God is some kind of like, divine karma dispenser right, instead of the God of the universe. And so this... But this passage right, puts those notions to bed. Jesus says, let's get in the boat and go across. And the disciples obey immediately. And where does their immediate obedience get them? Verse 23. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. Like following Jesus, being obedient to Jesus, led the disciples directly into a trial. In the case, the trials were a severe storm. So the Sea of Galilee, where they're sailing across here, it's this body of water, and it's like some 700 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded on all sides by, by mountains. And so the result is you can get cold air that rushes down these mountains into the Sea of Galilee Valley, and that cold air, everything that's warm air from the Sea of Galilee, creates storms out of nowhere. Quickly, sudden, violent storms. When I went to Israel, shortly before I started here, like we took a boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. And it was like one of the highlights of the trip for me. Because right? like, so many other landmarks in Israel that you visit, like, they're like so commercialized that they seem to lose their significance. Or they're just a medieval church built on top of a supposedly important site, but you can't really feel like it was when Jesus was there. 
But as you sail across the Sea of Galilee, right, if you look in the right direction, meaning like away from a couple of the modern cities, like you can basically see what Jesus and the disciples would have seen this day, like sailing across the water. Right? Just beautiful lake, beautiful scenery around, these nice mountains rising quickly from the coast. And so it was, it was a beautiful trip, and I really enjoyed that ride. But I had like heard about this tendency for like storms to whip up on the Sea of Galilee. And I remember like hoping, like hoping, hoping, hoping right, that we'd get one of these big storms. Like just so that whenever the day came when I was going to preach this passage, I would have a good illustration to go on. Alas, like we just had beautiful weather the whole day. I've never been so bummed out that we just had great weather. Like I wanted a storm just so I could say I'd been there. But the disciples that day weren't that fortunate. The storm whips up, and apparently it was a big one. Because Luke says they were in great danger. And when they wake Jesus up, they say, we are going to drown. And let's not forget, like, at least four of the disciples, they're trained fishermen who lived their life on this lake. They were not going to overreact to a little storm. So if they said, we're going to drown, we're dying, they meant it, and they knew what they were talking about. Like, I remember one of the first times I flew on an airplane. We were flying with the, my youth group from high school. We were going to Mexico to do a mission trip down there. As we were flying, we hit what seemed to me, like, being the airplane newbie that I was, to be some, some pretty significant turbulence. Like, so I was like, starting to get a little concerned. Like, I'm like looking out the window, just waiting for the wing to break off. I'm like, a little worried. But then I like looked at the, the flight attendants, right? And like they're like still walking up and down the aisles. They don't seem concerned. And I just like reassure myself, like, well, if they're not freaking out, then I probably don't need you either. Because right? they're the pros. If they don't seem concerned, they'll know when to worry. Right? That's the case with the disciples here, right? If they're worried about a storm, then there's good reason to be worried because they're professional fishermen. And so the boat was taking on water. They were in very real danger. This is a very real trial. Right? And they were in this trial because they had obeyed and followed Jesus. We can't miss that point. That can be a little hard for us to wrap our minds around. There's just something that screams, like, that's not fair. How can a good God let his people go through trials and they're faithfully following him? And maybe you think some of the same thoughts. Maybe you don't think them like explicitly. But I think many of us, or at least I, like had this kind of belief that kind of always runs in the background of my theology that says, like, as long as I'm obeying God, like, nothing bad's going to happen to me. Right? I won't say it out loud, usually, but like, it's kind of always there in the background. It's a kind of background belief. We tend to think, like, trials only come when I disobey. Like, surely God won't let me go through these difficulties when I'm doing everything right. And if he does, well then, maybe it's a sign that he either doesn't care about me, or he's not powerful enough to stop these things from happening. And when we start to have those kind of thoughts, right, then we start to get into this cycle of doubts and questioning and wondering about God. Right? And that's what happens to the, to the the disciples here. 
as the waves continue to build and more and more water comes on the boat. Like these seasoned professional fishermen, like, they don't reassure themselves by placing their faith in Jesus. They don't say, well, we've seen Jesus raise the dead, we've seen him cast out demons, I'm sure things will be fine. They don't say that. Instead, in verse 24, they say, the disciples went to him, woke him up and said, Master, Master, we are going to drown. Not, hey, if you don't do something, we're going to drown. Not, like, apart from divine intervention, we're going to drown. Just, we are going to drown. Like, it's a statement of fact. They were doubting the ability, that Jesus had the ability to heal them, to save them. And we know this because Jesus asked them point blank, right? Where is your faith? In Mark's version of this story, the disciples are even more explicit about their, their doubts. In Mark, the disciples say to Jesus, like, don't you care if we drown? Like, who hasn't felt that at some point? Right? If they walk through a trial, right? like, doesn't Jesus care what I'm going through? If he does care, isn't he powerful enough to stop it? If he is powerful enough, then why won't he stop this thing from happening? Doesn't he know that I don't deserve this? Doesn't he love me? Like, how dare he let me go through this? And it's really easy in those moments to let those stuff build to the point where we get angry with God. But I find how what Tim Keller has to say about this very helpful. He said this, If you have a God great enough and powerful enough to be mad at because he doesn't stop your suffering, then you also have a God who's great enough and powerful enough to have reasons that you can't understand. You can't have it both ways. If you truly believe that God is big and powerful enough to orchestrate the events of your life that would lead you into a trial, then that God like, has to be big enough and powerful enough and strong enough to know what is best for you and to have greater purposes for you. Elizabeth Elliot, whose, whose husband Jim Elliot was a missionary who was killed by a group of natives in Ecuador, like, put it this way. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably, beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. The reasons for our trials are often bigger than we can grasp or imagine. We have to trust God in those moments. But the disciples weren't there yet. They weren't trusting God, they were still racked with doubt. And as we walk through our own trials, like, we may find that our hearts are not always quite to that place of faith yet either. Like, we find ourselves still doubting God in our mind as we walk through trials. Like, maybe you hear those quotes from Keller and from Elliot and you ask, like, how, how can they have that kind of faith? Like, I can't imagine having a faith like that. And the disciples... That's where they were. They needed their faith to grow in order to overcome their doubts. And indeed, it would grow. Right? By the end of their lives, like, these disciples would go from these men who are terrified of drowning in a boat with Jesus by their side to men who would joyfully suffer 
And ultimately, many of them die for following Jesus. And the question is, like, what changed? How did they grow in their faith? How were they so transformed? And part of the answer is revealed in what happens next. The second part of verse 24 says this. He, that is Jesus, got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Here's what I find incredible about this. Even though the disciples were walking through doubt, even though they were doubting Jesus, even though they were convinced they were going to die and that Jesus didn't care, even though they were doubting Him, Jesus still saved them. Jesus was still faithful. One of the ways that our faith grows is by going through these periods of pain and suffering and trials and experiencing doubt, but then seeing Jesus be faithful to us even in the midst of our questioning and doubt. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes, even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. Even as we walk through trials and sufferings, and those trials and sufferings cause us to question and doubt, Jesus remains faithful to us. Because what matters is not not the quality of our faith, but the object of our faith. In this moment, the faith of the disciples was not high. It was not a high quality faith. They thought they were going to die. They doubted if Jesus even cared they were going to die. But still, they went to Jesus to be saved. In Matthew's telling, they say, Lord, save us. We are going to drown. So in that moment, they weren't super confident that Jesus would save them. But they did know that he was their only hope of being saved. And despite their doubts and despite their faithlessness, Jesus was faithful. Like We don't have to believe everything perfectly all the time in order to be saved. We just need to believe in the one who is able to save. If you're anything like me, you forget, forget the truth all the time. Like, like here's how it goes in my heart. Like I, I know, I believe that I am not saved by works. Right? I know I'm believed by, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Like, I know that. But then my brain says, so I better make sure I work really hard to have enough faith to get that grace that saves me. Right? Like, I know I'm not saved by works, but I've got to work hard for my faith. And like, the good news of the Gospel right, is that Jesus saves us when we place our faith in Him. Not when we trust Him perfectly. Not when our faith attains a high enough caliber. Right? Not, when, not when we've overcome all our doubts. Not when we've resolved all our questions. But when we grasp that we are in danger and that our only hope of being saved is to run to Jesus and say, Jesus, save me, I am perishing. Jesus' faithfulness to us does not depend on us exercising perfect faith. But that's not to say right, that we should live life continually marked by questions and doubts. Life might hold on a little sliver of faith, I'm good. And so we just kind of live this constant life of 
questioning and doubt. That's not the goal. We are called to have a robust faith in Jesus. But sometimes we need to experience the faithfulness of Him a number of times first before we get to that kind of faith. There's there's a big difference between believing something in the abstract and having an experiential knowledge of that thing. Someone can tell you Oh, hey, the, like the Colorado River, like it cuts this massive canyon through a rock in Arizona. And they can tell you how amazing it is. And they can tell you about their experience seeing this thing. And they can tell you how this, like, being there put a sense of awe into them. And you may totally believe them. Right? You may be totally convinced that what they saw was truly awe-inspiring. Right? But until you stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon for yourself, and experience it, you're not going to fully grasp what they're talking about. And the same thing is true with the life of faith. You can believe that Jesus will be with you in hard times. You can believe that even when we're faithless, Jesus will remain faithful. But then actually going through a period of trial and hardship and suffering and questioning and doubt, and then experiencing that faithfulness for yourself will do more to deepen your faith than just pure head knowledge ever could. And we see that happen to the disciples here. Right? Jesus was faithful in the midst of their doubts, and that faithfulness leads them to even greater faith. It's up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, the disciples have seen Jesus do a number of incredible things. They've seen him heal the sick, They've seen him preach powerfully. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him claim authority to forgive sins. They've even seen him raise the dead. But through the events of this story, they learn even more about who Jesus is. Like Luke, kind of masterfully throughout his gospel, has been slowly revealing little by little more and more about who Jesus is. And this passage is a big piece of the puzzle. Look at verse 25. Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. The disciples have been around Jesus for quite a while at this point. They thought they knew him well. They knew he was capable of incredible things. But the ability to command the wind and the waves, that was something altogether new and different. And it expanded their sense of who Jesus was. The apostles were certainly familiar with verses like Psalm 65-7, which says that God is the one who stills the roaring seas and the roaring waves. And Psalm 89-9, which says, You, that is God, rule the raging seas. When its waves rise, you still them. This act of calming the sea, calming the storm, opened the disciples' eyes more to the fact that Jesus was God. They already knew that only God can forgive sins and that Jesus had claimed the authority to forgive sins. But it's kind of hard to prove visually that someone's sins are forgiven. But here, there's another thing only God can do. Only God can command the wind and the waves. 
And Jesus does that, and this time there's visual proof, right? The, the storm stops. So because of that, like, the disciples see more of who Jesus is. And they are drawn into a deeper faith in Jesus. And as a result, they, they follow Jesus more closely, more closely, and like, this cycle repeats. Like, as the disciples walked with Jesus day by day, they got to, got to know him more and more deeply. And they saw his faithfulness to him, even in the face of their own weaknesses and doubts. They experienced him do incredible things. And that deepened their faith and made them desire to follow Jesus even more closely. To the point that they would gladly suffer and die for the sake of following Jesus. And ultimately, that's what the Christian life is all about. Knowing Jesus more and more deeply, day by day. Having our head knowledge about Jesus turn into experiential knowledge. Like letting our knowledge and faith in Jesus conform us more and more into his image. Until ultimately we are so willing to follow Jesus that we are willing to suffer anything to follow him. Earlier we read that quote from Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot. And like I asked the question, like, how did she get there? How did she get to the point where she could be so confident that God's will was bigger than she could comprehend? And I think the answer is here. That she just walked with Jesus for so long. That she had been around this cycle so many times. That she had seen Jesus be faithful through incredible trials, including the murder of her husband. That she had been there. That she was following Jesus so closely that she had come to a place of deep and abiding trust in Jesus. And each of us here is at a different place this morning. We've each been around this cycle a different number of times. We're all at different places in this cycle this morning. Some of us are are walking through pain and suffering right now. Some of us are seeing Jesus do incredible things and our faith is deepening. Some of us are going through a season of doubt and questioning right now. But here's the good news. No matter where you are in this cycle, it all revolves around the person and work of Jesus. And He is unchanging. In just a minute, we're going to take communion together. And when we do that, we remember the unchanging person and work of Jesus. In communion, we remember... Jesus' ultimate act of faithfulness in the, in the face of our faithlessness. This story we read this morning is one of two stories in the Bible where, the, where a storm is suddenly stilled. The other found in the book of Jonah. And in that story, like a mighty storm is starting to sink the boat Jonah is on. And in the midst of that storm, Jonah says, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. Essentially there, Jonah is saying, like, if I die, you will live. Many years later, Jesus would come and he would say this. He would say, one greater than Jonah is here. Jesus didn't come just to calm this one storm for this one group of disciples. He came to calm the storms of sin and death. He did it by being willing to, to be thrown into the storm that was the cross. 
On the cross, Jesus died the death you and I deserve to die for our sin. He died so that we may live. Like the one who could speak and calm the wind and the waves. The one who spoke the universe into existence, willingly submitted himself to death so that whoever believes in him can have eternal life. That act of faithfulness to us. The act of willingly going to the cross. It's the ultimate answer to the question, don't you care that we are perishing? When we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross, when we really believe that he suffered all that he did for us, we know the answer to that question. So we are, we are a forgetful people. We need, to, we need reminders of Jesus' faithfulness. And really that's what communion is all about. A way of reminding us of Jesus' faithfulness. So we'll, we'll partake together in just a minute. Before we do, I just want to give us a few minutes of quiet reflection. And in those moments, I'd encourage you to reflect on a couple of things. One, all the times that Jesus has been faithful to you in the midst of trial and suffering and doubt. And I'd encourage you to reflect on, are there ways that I'm not following Jesus right now? And if there are, then take this time to quietly, in your heart, confess those things to him, trusting that he forgives, that he is faithful, and he invites you to continue to walk closely with him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are the one who commands the wind and the sea. And ultimately, you're the one who commands our lives. That nothing happens apart from your sovereign word. That you are at work to use all the things that happen to us for our good, to conform us to the image of your Son. But we live with a confident trust in that truth. Put our faith in you deepen day by day as we see you walk faithfully with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
my Jesus, God's precious sacrifice. The Lord Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Partake. Jesus, we thank you for this tangible reminder of all you've done for us. Whether you walk with us, you come alongside us and are faithful to us. Christ in Jesus' name, amen. May the God of peace, who, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Ear dismissed. Thank you.